I would like you to see all the sex I've had because I'm a sex haver. Hey, and welcome to Meet Your Heroes. I'm Elliot. And I'm Audrey. And this is the show where we ignore the very good conventional wisdom to never meet your heroes. And instead, get to know who they really were. Warts and all. Warts and all. It has been a tragic week for our burgeoning careers as TikTok stars. Um, Oh, just devastating. Yeah. Absolutely. For those of you who are following our uh, astronomical rise into the TikTok fame, uh, this week we were planning to download the app and create accounts Right. Uh, so that we could figure out what TikTok really was. Mm-hmm. Except, instead of just watching clips on Twitter, which is what we're used to doing. Or having like my actually cool sister forward us TikTok videos that we then have to open in like Safari. Yeah, but before this story could even get started. Before. Our dear leader uh, has decided that because teenagers are making fun of him, we will be banning TikTok. Sure. Which, as I have to say... It's actually probably a net win. TikTok is bad for all kinds of different reasons. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Somebody was like, um, have you seen this on TikTok? Do you make TikToks? And I was like, no, I don't fuck with TikTok because I'm not trying to be more actively surveilled. Yeah. Imagine this. Imagine a Facebook, but also with the national security laws of the Chinese Communist Party. Sure. It's like the worst of every world. Yeah. At the same time, there's just a really deep part of me that is resistant to literally anything the current president says he's going to do. Okay. Okay. Yes. That's true. That's true. I don't like being told what to do by anybody, but <laughs> let alone him. Before you were against TikTok because it was cool. Now you're for it because the president is not. My principles are flexible. <laughs> <laughs> I am what you might say uh, agile around this specific concept. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. You know what? I think I have a perfect solution to this whole tragedy. Vine. Uh, bring back Vine. Bring back Vine. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Um, Vine was just like glory days. We didn't know how good we had it. I think about that often a la MySpace. Literally every mm-hmm. now and then mm-hmm. I was like, wow. Okay. Yes. So that was peak social media. Yeah. It's like there's, I don't know if you remember, have you seen The Matrix? I I have seen The Matrix. <laughs> Why do you laugh at that? Um, Did you watch it with like an obnoxious middle school boyfriend? So first of all, he's my freshman boyfriend. Oh, excuse me. Yeah, excuse and me. Um, definitely. Yeah. yeah, okay, okay. And I didn't care about it then, don't care about it now, but yes. hit me with it. Okay, so there was this line in the original Matrix, which is like somebody's explaining to Keanu Reeves why they're all in this simulation. And like when they're being harvested for their energy, he's like, we brought you back to the late 90s, which is like your peak civilization culture and like more and more i feel like oh man such a prescient such a prescient line like myspace just like coming into the scene right there you know having your friends hang out being your top friends do you remember this so i don't actually i was not i was not that into myspace like i didn't really fully get into it. I was the first person from my high school to ever have Facebook Ooh. because I was one of the few from my high school who went to college. <laughs> okay. That's and yes. <laughs> that year was the year Facebook came out and you had to be in college at first yeah. to get Facebook. Yeah. It was a very, yeah. very it, exclusive thing. It was like myself and then this one other girl who, a woman now, she would have been a woman then. She would have been an adult. Um, who was like three years older than me. We were the first two on Facebook for a very long time. And then they opened up the floodgates. And there we go. And the rest is history. Oh, God. Yeah. It's all bad. Right. Speaking of history. Love it. Who's this week's hero? Uh, So this week's hero is someone that I didn't know a lot about before we before I did this research. Maybe learned about this person in literature class or English class class and just like didn't pay attention maybe never learned about it again who knows <laughs> <laughs> didn't register in my deep brain but we are going to be talking about Leo Tolstoy Leo Tolstoy yeah do you know anything about Tolstoy 
Um, okay, so if I am not confusing him with another Russian writer, I think he's the person who wrote War and Peace. He is. Were you thinking of Nabokov? There's Nabokov, who I think comes later. Mm-hmm. Um, there's yes. But there's Dostoevsky, who I uh, know from, like, philosophy writings. Okay. Uh, but I think Tolstoy is, like, the big... Here's the thing. Tolstoy wrote War and Peace. He and did. that is, like, the... Everybody knows, like, if you're thinking of a long book to put in a Bugs Bunny cartoon. <laughs> like, that's the one they pick. Sure, yeah. So he did write War and Peace. Uh-huh. He also wrote Anna Karenina. Don't know if you know that story. Okay. Um, and just for our listeners real quick, I know we do this maybe every five or six episodes because it is such a shock, but Clyde is still alive, and that <laughs> is him snoring in the background. <laughs> so we're very sorry. He's loud, but we love him, and he... He's just going to snore in the background. He snores in the background. Um, So back to Tolstoy. Yes. Yes. So prolific writer, War and Peace, that's the big one. Anna Karenina, another big one. Both considered... Oh, Pride and Prejudice, another big one of his. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) yes. Am I getting that confused? Yeah, he is one of the Bronte sisters, Okay, I thought so. (laughs) Both War and Peace and Anna Karenina considered some of the absolute best pieces of literature ever written. I feel like they're so good that nobody bothers to read them because they just know them as being good. They're also laborious. Yeah, like in- incredibly, incredibly large. Yes. I think the thing, doesn't War and Peace have something like 85 main characters? It has something like that, yes. One of the things very unique to Tolstoy is a number of fleshed out characters in his writing. Yeah, like like mm-hmm. full backstories, not like somebody totally. who like walks in one conversation, but no. somebody who like you know their motivations in history. And it's like, like every chapter is fucking Canterbury Tales. Yeah. Like... I remember. Oh, bam, bam, bam. Yes. Uh, but we're not going to talk about his writing. Okay. Good. Snooze. Boring. Who cares yes. about who cares about the Mm-mm. classics of literature? This is not a highbrow podcast. Nerds. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to talk about his personal life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So this has one of the shorter caveats of all of our uh, episodes. Not a terrible dude. Not. There's just so much about his life that I feel like most people do not know. He yeah. was a wily critter. Just like wily. That's that's the adjective you're going with. Yeah. Yeah. From Shooting from the hip tonight. <laughs> okay. Okay. So let's start at the beginning. Leo Tolstoy... Born September 9th, 1828, in Russia, which means that that's only the new style of his birthday, just oh, like yeah, we learned with right. Ayn Rand. This calendar thing. It, it is. We're going new style okay. all the way. September 9th, Audrey's Astrology Corner. He's uh, a Virgo. Oh. Oh, uh, what? You had something smart to say about Audrey's Astrology Corner again? Yeah, what was his birthday? September 9th. Oh, I know this one. I was going to actually guess that they made him an octopotamus. Um, <laughs> yep, that's the one. Just that very unique, specific... But I was I was off a little. It was a Virgo, you said? He, he is a Virgo, yes. Which is equally real to the thing I said. Every week. <laughs> Man, no joy in this podcast. None. Okay. He's such a hater. Listen... When there's an uprising and our fans revolt, you're out. So Audrey's Astrology Corner, sticking around, you're donezo. It's going to be, it's gonna be the Audrey's Astrology Corner podcast. <laughs> it's just me, like a like a bingo wheel, <laughs> yes. like pulling out birthdays <laughs> and not actually like doing any research, just making it up as I go along. Like, I like this. I like yeah. this. Has likes. Because what I'm about to say is very well researched <laughs> yes. and scientific. Please. So, a Virgo, born on September 9th. This person's uh, willpower and organizational skills are amongst their greatest strengths. They impress others with their ability to work tirelessly in the face of tough challenges. They can bring control to almost any situation, especially when leading others is involved. Their natural ability to understand others allows them to delegate tasks in an effective way, and their friends, family, and peers admire their drive and ambition. Okay, so admired for drive and ambition. Yeah. Let's see. Let's see if it holds up. Okay. Here's you know, the definitive, we never, definitive test. Wait, yeah. we never what? We never like loop back around to say, hey, did Audrey's astrology corner come true? So You're right. We never we never hold the <laughs> predictions of the astrological calendar up to empirical follow up mm-hmm. to test and see if they're valid. We don't. Hmm. Okay. Okay. <laughs> well, I don't see what could go wrong. <laughs> what could go wrong? Tolstoy's family. Well known. Nobility. <laughs> 
Aristic. I almost said Aristocats. <laughs> Which is like beep, 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 beep. Right. Make this a good story. It would. Aristocrats. What year are we talking about again? So he's born in 1828. Okay, so here's what I know. I know from one of the ones I researched that if you look at like 1928, mm-hmm. 1917 is the big revolution. Mm-hmm. This is a czar in Russia. Yes. There's like the big fancy palaces mm-hmm. and there's no sign of any revolution on the horizon for this. Not at the moment. There's a czar. The Russian Orthodox Church has a ton of influence. Okay. Um, but his family is very well off. They own a ton of land. They're very wealthy. So what we're establishing here is that this is a time when things are going pretty well for nobility. This is not a... A plus time to be rich in Russia. Got it. Okay. Okay. Yes. I'm with you. <laughs> uh, family owns a ton of land. Big estate. He's born on that estate. He's the fourth of five children. Unfortunately, when he was two, his mother died, which I would imagine, I'm just like making an inference here. I It sounds like she probably died on, died in childbirth with okay. his younger sibling. Makes sense. So like if you sense. do the math, he would roughly be about two. Yeah. A few years later, his father dies. He and his siblings were raised by relatives. They had means. This was not one of those situations where his parents died and he was like, Destitute. Out on the streets. Yeah. No, no. You're rich. People are willing to look after you. You got money. Born rich, dies rich. Oh. He lives well. Tolstoy is like not hurting for money. Okay. So none of this is like the starving artist. No, which I think is an important thing to point out, right? Like he wrote two of the greatest pieces of literature because he fucking could. Like that was <laughs> his only job. Yeah. Right. Anyway, so in 1844, he's 16. He begins to study law. His teachers, however, described him as, quote, both unable and unwilling to learn. Okay, got it, got it. Which is just, like, so thematic. Lazy and stupid. <laughs> well, okay, so maybe he was just, Unwilling like, and unable? That sounds like lazy and stupid to me. I mean, I'm not sure I would go that far. I would say it sounds... I mean, he wrote some incredible pieces oh, of literature. I'm not saying he was. What I'm saying is they're describing him as lazy and stupid. Oh, they're Whether they're correct that. or not, yes. that's what they're saying. yes. So he wasn't with it, like, academically in the school sense. Yeah. I didn't find a ton of information more about this, but my guess would be he's, like, in the Marlon Brando school of, like, mm, I don't give a fuck. Yeah, I'm not going like, to listen to these yeah. teachers but versus... Way, yeah, just to, like, be clear, I'm going to triple down on this point. The teachers calling Tolstoy stupid yeah. were probably not correct. <laughs> right. But, yes, that is clearly yeah. the impression that the academically minded folk yet. Sure. And the term stupid is an ableist term. So we generally like would not want to apply that to anybody. But it sounds like he is not having academic success. He struggled in school. Um, But listen, you and I were the top of our class, honor students. And look at us now. Look at us now sitting in the closet. (laughs) Sitting in the closet. With a snoring dog. (laughs) Oh, definitely not Russian nobility. Not Russian nobility. I would I would much prefer to have been Russian nobility. Let's be clear. You know, I would need to see a pros and cons list in this <laughs> scenario. It's probably wise, actually. I'd really, I'd really need to weigh it out. So he drops out of college. He sticks around for a couple of years and is like, this is not for me. He sort of just like hangs out, gambles a bit. He, people at the time describe him as leading, leading a lax and luxurious lifestyle. Yeah, he's a playboy. What are you going to do? <laughs> he's like 20, rich, nothing to lose. Okay, yeah, imagine any rich 20-year-old, you know... Heir to fortunes. Sure. Got it. Right. Probably a D-bag. Yeah. He's the Tucker Carlson of his time. <laughs> yes. Hopefully a <laughs> uh, little little less terrible. Sure. Fewer chicken nuggets, but like yes. really six of one. So he's around like 18, 20 at this time. He starts writing. He finishes his first novel, which is a fictitious account of his own childhood, not coincidentally called Childhood. Oh, wow. That's a bold stake. Mm -hmm. It's the first in a trilogy of autobiographical novels. (laughs) Childhood Part 2. I'm curious about that one. Just imagine being like a 20-year-old rich child who's like, you know what? The world needs a trilogy of fiction about my life. Wow. Right? So he writes a ton. Just like throughout his life, he is constantly writing. I get the impression there was not a lot of competition for content in the Mm -hmm. world he gets this out there it's published 
people are interested in it. This is a theme I've seen in other people's lives, too. Uh, I'm at a loss for examples, but I, I would have this this sense that a lot of people who... Uh, uh, actually, I have one other example, which okay. is the Beatles. Lots of people who like are marked with like creating big, culturally important things mm-hmm. also just put out a ton of stuff. Yes. And then their bad stuff like doesn't get like mm-hmm. talked about a ton. Mm-hmm. But then if some of it is good, people are like, they were geniuses. Yes. I feel like this is the same pattern, where if you just have the luxury to like produce a ton, mm-hmm. eventually you'll get good enough to do something good, and that's all people will care about. Absolutely. So this trilogy is specifically about a rich landowner's son and his slow realization of the chasm between himself and peasants. <laughs> oh, man. He is a D-bag. He is a D-bag, right? Wow. You know, the nobility is like, oh, you're right. There is a huge gap between us and peasants. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah, people like who are doing the book reviews is like, as the nobility's book reviewer monthly, I would say this is a great book. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks for pointing this out. (laughs) Going to do nothing with this information. But so the year before this book is published, when it's finished, whatever, he's got a ton of gambling debts because he's just been like dicking around, Mm -hmm. losing money. Instead of paying those debts, he uh, moves to the Caucasus. uh, He's running from the gambling debt? He is. So he goes there to live with his older brother and um, joins the army. Nothing to do, I guess. Just why not? He joined it just in time to become a young artillery officer during the Crimean War. Okay, fun. Poor timing. Yeah, I mean... Seems like you could have just, like, sold some land to pay that debt, but... Does seem like he has money. He's in the Crimean War. There's this very long battle that he's involved in. It lasts, like, 11 months. 11-month battle? Yeah. That's insane. I mean, I, I don't really know how war typically goes, but... Here's what I'll tell you. People shooting stuff at each other for as long as we've had people shooting stuff, like, generally doesn't go on uh, for that long. Even I mean, like, I guess there's some trenches in World War One where we're, like, just starting to fire stuff at people, and we just, like, set it up and fire it. But that seems like a long time to be firing back and forth. I, again, am not an expert, and I did no further research into this. <laughs> this, okay. is, this is barely above copy-paste Got it. Right okay, now. <laughs> okay. Uh, he's promoted to lieutenant, after this particular battle because he, quote, showed courage. However, after the war ends, he was like, fuck this shit. There's way too much killing other people for my taste. I'm out. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you were just playing cards and writing books before, I'm sure this seems hard. (laughs) Yes. It seems hard if you were killing other people before. Just prolonged months of killing other people. It would take a toll on anybody. Okay, fair enough. Um, So it's around this time that he leaves the army. He starts to travel around Europe. Up to this point, he has been really privileged, borderline indulgent, minus the, like, year of killing people. But in 1857, he sees a public execution in France. And this really messes with this paradigm he has of the role of government and spirituality, right? So of this time, he wrote, quote, The truth is that the state is a conspiracy designed not only to exploit, but above all to corrupt its citizens. Henceforth, I shall never serve any government anywhere. Power to the people. Sure, I guess. Like Not hating it. Yeah, state violence. Don't love it. Don't love it. Timely. Really bad. (laughs) Um, But by this time, by the like early 1860s, he considers himself a... Uh, non-violent anarchist. Gandhi, like 30 years later, is corresponding with Tolstoy. And he's like, tell me about the principles of non-violent anarchism and the role of civil disobedience. Oh, fun. Okay. So, you know, we're seeing a thread through some folks here. Back to 1861, though. He's in his early 30s. He's like 32, 33. He visits France, where he sees this public execution. But he also meets Victor Hugo. You know who Victor Hugo is? Is that ringing a bell? Okay, so he had just finished uh, Les Miserables. Mm. Les Mis. Writing Les Mis. <laughs> Writing Les Mis. And at the same time, Tolstoy meets uh, Victor Hugo, who is like an inspiration to him. In the literary sense, he also meets this French anarchist, Pierre-Joseph Proudhon. Proudhon is like this writer who's putting out anarchist philosophy. He is uh, just about to publish this piece and Tolstoy gets like one of the first looks at this like upcoming piece that Proudhon is going to publish and this 
work is called La Guerre Le Pe. Oh, what? War and Peace. No way. <laughs> what? Yes. So, just for the record, the title for Tolstoy's book is not stolen. It is basically credited as borrowed from inspiration that Proudhon uh, sort of like planted these anarchist seeds in Tolstoy. I mean, that's pretty fucking convenient to be like, I didn't steal this thing that is taken from this other person. It's like a homage to that person. It is. Homage is the French word for I stole it. I stole it. Yeah. It's, it's very fancy stealing. Yes. <laughs> uh, but anyway, so he's like clearly grappling at this time with these major concepts of religion and government and education and class and like his wealth and his role in society and blah, blah, blah. And then his brother dies and that sucks. And so Tolstoy is like, wow, I've been grappling with these big concepts, but life is so short. Now is the time to just like settle down, dig in, be present. I need a wife. That's that's where he goes. That's he goes. Okay. And he goes to his court. His court? His court. God, I forgot what a rich douchebag he was for a second. And he was like, hey, any of y'all got somebody who wants to marry me? And the court physician was like, yes. My 16-year-old daughter, Sophia, would love to marry Yikes. you. Yikes. He's like 30 at this point? 32. 32. Yeah. So we can call a spade a spade. And that's gross and not appropriate. So her name is Sophia. Sometimes she's referred to as Sonia, which is like a diminutive, like a Russian diminutive for the name Sophia. Yeah. But, so well, if you see you're not writing, writing these in, in Western, it's all acrylic alphabet anyway. So like, yeah, you're transliterating it either way. Yes. I just, in case folks want to do some research into this, if you see Sonia Sophia and Sophia. Sonia, it's the same at the time child who eventually <laughs> yes. becomes a woman. It's the same child bride. Mm-hmm. So let me paint you a picture of how this marriage begins. It's the night before the wedding. Tolstoy's like, Sophia, you're hot. I'm hot. I'm rich. I'm rich. We're hot for each other. But before we lock this down, there are a few things you should know. And so he sits her down and he forces her to read all of his diaries. What? And these diaries detail day by day contemporaneous account of all of his moral failings. That he has, like, accumulated over the years. The primary ones being his proclivity to visit brothels and uh, the details of all of his other sexual exploits. <laughs> what? Yeah. What kind of, like, head up your ass moment do you have where you're like, oh, yes, before this 16-year-old marries me, <laughs> I would like you to see all the sex I've had because I'm a sex haver. I mean, to me, that feels like the most generous, like, kind of weird explanation. It feels so paternalistic and creepy to be like, hey, 16-year-old bride, I'm 30. I'm a 32-year-old rich man who has essentially, like, bought you to be my bride. Here's all the sex I've had before. You should know this. Yeah. But what is the, what is the intended goal? Clean slate, I guess. I don't know. They're getting married within two weeks of meeting each other. It's essentially like an arranged marriage. Yeah. She does not love this. <laughs> you don't say. Right. See, th I'm, I'm totally shocked because, frankly, before we got married, you loved reading my sex journals. <laughs> like, this was a great move at the time. And so the fact that right. she didn't love it right. is really shocking to me. Yeah. I mean... By the way, know, for the I'll... record, I didn't love reading your sex journals. I thought that was weird. <laughs> right. Well... You know, there was a time in my life where I, too, was a 32-year-old man, and you were a 16-year-old girl. And the power dynamic has shifted since then. It's been very... Yeah, it was, it, was a big, it was a big change. It was a big change. Despite all of this, marriage gets off to an okay start. Oh, one detail that I left out here that I'm just noticing on my notes is that these diaries included the fact that he had impregnated at least one of the serfs on his family's estate. Wait, wait, wait. But he, kind of like an unknown surf. Like, uh, this person is never documented. Like, uh, a surf. He didn't bother writing down the name. As far as I can tell. So, just with the power dynamic of, like, lord of the castle and serfs who, like, control your land and livelihood. Let's, like, he, there's no way he's having some consensual relationship with no. some surf out there. Yes. So he's like, oh, I raped some random woman who, who has a kid, I'm pretty sure. Yes. And didn't bother to write down the name. 
so far as I could tell. And you're saying this didn't go over well with her? You know, it was rocky, but, you know, uh, other than that, she still married him. I mean, it didn't sound like she had a lot of choices in the first place. It didn't. It didn't. And so their marriage started off rocky. And then there's this, like, period where it was like, okay. And then there was, like, another 40 years where it was terrible. (laughs) Oh, 40, you said. Yeah, it has been described as, quote, the least happy marriage in literary history. Wow. But we'll get to that. That's... It starts here. It goes up a little bit. And then it just like bottoms out for The least happy decades. marriage in literary history. Mm-hmm. Has this person read Bride of Frankenstein? <laughs> <laughs> Still. Okay. Let's see. Okay. Let's see. See if it holds up. So they get married. Within a year, she's pregnant. That's how it works. Mm-hmm. She's like 17 at this point. She has their first child. The following year, they have another child. Then over the next 25 years, they have a total of 13 children. Jesus Christ. I honestly, for a second there, when you said 25 years, I was like, there's no way she had 25 more kids. 13 is not much better, though. Well, yeah. And then five of them died in infancy. Oh, yikes. I know. Isn't that horrible? So also, to go back to that point of like least happy marriage in literary history, like if five of my children died... I wouldn't just have, like, the least happy marriage. I would be, like, the least happy person yeah, in that's... literary history. Oh, my God. Horrific. Horrific. Back to their first year of marriage. Tolstoy is busy writing War and Peace. Within the first two years, this draft is done, right? He doesn't have to work outside the home. She's having just teenagers having children for him multiple times. Yeah, yeah. He's writing this book. It's not fully published until seven years later. It is revised over 30 times. And every single time Tolstoy revises a passage, Sophia has to go and rewrite it cleanly. Wait, she's the one transcribing all the changes? Yes, every time. And then he'll read the paragraph and like put notes all over. And she has to recopy it for him to then go revise further. Wait, wait, wait. So she wrote the manuscript by hand for War and Peace over 30 times (laughs) in seven years. Oh, my God. Two years to write it, seven years for her to rewrite these passages over and over again. Yes. Oh, my God. All the while giving birth to multiple children, managing their estate and all of their money and business affairs because he's not doing any of it. He has they have all this land, this property, this house, all of these children and she's just like at his beck and call. Oh my god. Yes. There is some evidence that she just like idealized him for the first few years of their marriage. She thought he was genius. He is this very powerful person. Apparently he was quite interesting. Um, but he was really critical. I saw somebody online talk about how, like, behind every successful man, there's a powerful woman or whatever. And all I could think about was my grandma saying about this. Do you remember what, what my grandma would say about successful men? No. Um, behind every successful man, there stands a surprised woman. <laughs> <laughs> I'd forgotten that, yes. Which I like better. It doesn't really fit here, but I like it better. Yeah, okay. So, whoop, plug that in there. So she's doing all this labor for him. At the same time that he's rewriting War and Peace, he's also writing Anna Karenina. Okay, so if he would have had to have written all of his revisions again mm-hmm. over those seven years, there's no way he would have gotten this done. Like, no. He took two years to write the first thing, and then seven years of changes? Yes. He's, he's not the kind who is like... Doing his own grunt work. Got it. Right. He's also at the same time writing Anna Karenina. Another. The, yes. The now he novel. started writing yes. Anna Karenina. He's also, like our other Russian friend, Ayn Rand, starting to sort of codify a new moral and philosophical framework. Oh. For himself initially. Got it. Got it. It's reported that in like 1869, so at this point he would have been 41. He was traveling and had this, like, middle-of-the-night spiritual breakthrough where he realized that the only end to life is death. Like, that's Wait, it. The, the only way you get out is by dying. I got to tell you, this wasn't news to a lot of people. It struck him very <laughs> in a place, okay. a new place. And he was thinking, like, okay, so if the only way out is death, 
then there's something to be said about the meaninglessness of it all. Like no matter how much you achieve, no matter how much you do, you're still going to die at the end. It's meaningless. And it's like, yeah, dude, that's what's up. (laughs) That's how it works. Death comes for us all. None of it matters. He does not like this idea that none of it matters. Okay. Okay. Instead of sort of like sitting with the futility of life or like his newfound understanding of the futility of it, Mm -hmm. he goes all in on trying to find some sort of spiritual meaning behind life. This is while he's trying to write these books. He's like grappling with these questions. Okay. Right. In his mind, he was like, there must be some meaning. Like, how are all of these other people? Am I alone in realizing this is meaningless? I, I can't be. Like, somebody has found the meaning to this. And so he's like studying Buddhism and Christianity and all of these different religions, just like deep diving as much as he can. And he's like observing other people who are religious and trying to find meaning. You start to see some of this like play out in Anna Karenina just like a little bit. The Cliff Notes version of Anna Karenina. Wait, hold on. Yes. We're giving spoilers for Anna Karenina. Oh, no, this is not plot. This is like themes. Okay, okay. Got it, got Um, it, got it. Also, if you haven't read Anna Karenina by now, there's a movie. Go watch it. It's not worth like multiple days you're going to read it. (laughs) (laughs) We're we're just officially writing off Anna Karenina as a work of literature. Uh, Yeah, just like, fuck that. No, not worth it. I mean, here's what I'll tell you. Too much hype. If people are listening to our podcast, they're not the sort of folks <laughs> who probably also are super into 19th century Russian literature. I would, I don't sell these smart and attractive people short. All right. Oh, you don't know I'm how not good selling them short. I'm just really managing <laughs> expectations about the quality of this podcast. Okay, fair. <laughs> um, we'll say it has almost nothing in common with this podcast. Yeah. yeah. The themes are apparent, though. Let's, let's get into the themes. Themes of betrayal, Mm -hmm. faith, family, marriage, uh, Russian society, desire, rural versus city life. All of these like concepts where there are defined roles and people Mm -hmm. play these roles. And who are they? And what are the institutions we're a part of? And what do we honor? And what are we loyal to? But also ultimately like a real theme of um, meaninglessness of it all and this grapple with the nihilism at the core of it. Sure. Yeah. What's the difference between myself as this like rich landowner and like peasants in on the streets in Russia? Which is, again, a marked contrast from where he started as his like childhood book, which mm -hmm. was just like, I'm a fucking badass. Yes. Yeah. He's matured a bit since then. He's matured. Like, how are we as individuals in these roles with these institutions different? And like, how are we not? Yes. Right. And so he's starting to dabble with this around this time. But after Anna Karenina is published in 1878, shit really takes off. You know, Tolstoy could take one of two paths in this moment. We all come to forks in the road. (laughs) (laughs) He could sort of go business as usual, wealthy, well-respected author whole bunch of critters at his house with his young hot wife so yes so many fucking kids business as usual or he would completely turn his life upside down my guess is that he is not going to go with the well-trodden path to domestic bliss no he loves drama Mm -hmm. he's quite the fan of drama and so starting in 1879, he begins a, se- a series of writings specifically about his own personal ideas regarding uh, melancholia, philosophy, and religion. And basically nothing else in the world after this moment in time really matters to him as much as diving into those concepts. So, so you have to remember, he's like... He's, he's still relatively young. Young. Yeah, well, he's around 50. And he, and he's, but from this point on, he's just going to get wrapped up in this, like, inward pursuit of the philosophical introspective life. Yes. Around this time, he writes this book called A Confession. And uh, this book describes... Later, later uh, covered to great fanfare by Usher Raymond. Shut up. Um, yeah, it was, it was a massive breakthrough hit. Right, right, yeah. yeah. Um, what's that? The 2004, 2006 Usher album, Confessions? Yes. Oh, yeah, Part yeah, one. yeah. Took, there you go. Took multiple parts, actually. You couldn't fit it all in one in one track. Mm. Just. Mm. Well, 
then he and Tolstoy have a lot in common. Yeah, because see, what Tolstoy say, then writes like a shit ton more. Hold after on. This. It says, Has anybody ever done a PhD thesis <laughs> on whether or not there is like it is a reinterpretation of Tolstoy's confession? That, well, that Usher did? Here's what I'll tell you. As a scholar of early 2000s R&B, okay. Usher's confession, mm-hmm. part one, is about impregnating his girlfriend mm-hmm. while engaged to Chili from mm-hmm. TLC. Yes, yes, right? yes, yes, yes. Um, not T-Boz or Left Eye, but Chili. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not at all what Tolstoy's book is about. It's not. Mm-mm. This book is about his search to answer this question. If God does not exist, since death is inevitable, what is the meaning of life? Yeah, it seems different. It seems different. I mean, it like, is. there's there's, there's like a... a little overlap. Yeah. A little Venn diagram, like, Rhymes. right in the middle, like, oh, we fucked. <laughs> <laughs> Whoops. Yeah, yeah. But I can, I can... I can see how they have different contributions to this body of work. Okay, Mm -hmm. okay. So he outlines his midlife crisis, and he notes that, like, without an answer to this question, it is just gnawing away at him, and his life has become, quote, impossible. Yeah, very similar to how one might feel if you had inadvertently had sex with (laughs) T-Boz, and then... We're trying to not mess up your current relationship. Don't bring T-Boz into this. <laughs> but, I mean, like, listen, whose life isn't impossible? Sure. Every day of my life, I'm like, this is, quote, impossible. <laughs> and then I live it anyway. Yes. Just day by day. That's 2020 in a nutshell, quote, impossible. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, cool. You've got existential, meaningless universe. Cool. Cool. Get in line, my friend. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> He's grappling with all of these things, like, what makes sense? What what matters? How can I make sense of the world? This religion doesn't fit. That religion doesn't fit. None of these fit. I'm going to make my own sort of, like, hybrid invented model of Christianity that oh. makes sense to me that I believe is right. All these other people just made up their religions. Why can't I, Leo Tolstoy, great mind of my generation, yeah, sort of, like, create a philosophy that works for me yeah when the going gets tough the tough invent a new religion (laughs) that's how it goes it'd be like that sometimes (laughs) every time Tolstoy believed that a true Christian could find lasting happiness by striving for inner perfection through following the greatest commandment which is loving one's neighbor and God instead of seeking or striving approval striving for or seeking approval from the guidance of the church or state so don't need an institution yep love your neighbor love jesus anarchism to the nth degree christian anarchy it's really convenient too that as a rich guy he picks a version of christianity he's like this is pretty good except the part where you don't need any of these like uh very powerful religious clergy because they are like a huge political influence at the time yeah and he's like yeah if you just get rid of these people and let me be in charge of this i think it looks a lot better right and also he had all of the means that he needed to not need any sort of like government institution to provide. Sure, yeah. Right? And also, like, I can't imagine that, you know, 1880s Russian government is, like, for the people. Yeah, I mean, like, it's about to spur a revolution, so Mm -hmm. I I doubt there's that many people happy with it. Right. A lot of these principles, not bad ideas. Should surprise no one that even though he had all of these grand, sort of, romantic, nonviolent, love-one-another philosophies that he's preaching to the world. He's a real fucking dick at home. (laughs) Okay, yes. This checks out. Yes. Uh, Checks all the boxes of all of our heroes every single time. Yeah. Right? In 2009, Sophia Tolstoy's diaries were published. 50 years of diaries. And she notes in these diaries that during this time of his, like, great spiritual awakening... His treatment of her and their many, many children. <laughs> yeah, like eight, nine at this point. Yeah. Yeah. Deteriorated to the point of like indifference, typically, but bordering on abuse. Just absolute neglect. There's uh, a review of 
this book that was published in The Guardian. And there's a, an excerpt from it that says, quote, Sophia's diaries show a picture of a cruel and difficult man, indifferent to his family, endlessly critical, who forced his wife to breastfeed all 13 of their children, despite the agony it caused her. In her own words, Sophia said this in, in like an excerpt from her diaries, quote, All the things that he preaches for the happiness of humanity only complicate life to the point where it has become harder and harder for me to live. His vegetarian diet means the complication of preparing two dinners, which means twice the expense and twice the work. His sermons on love and goodness have made him indifferent to his family and mean the intrusion of all kinds of riffraff into our family life. And his, parentheses, purely verbal renunciation of worldly goods has made him endlessly critical and disapproving of others. <laughs> yes, sounds like a uh, classic case of a very, very um, high-minded preacher who's just has no time to actually do any of this stuff in mm -hmm. his actual life. Yes. So by the 1880s, not only is he writing about and preaching about these new values, he is encouraging the people who read his work to come, renounce their lives, their material lives, and come live on his family's estate. Yeah, which he has not renounced. Not at all. <laughs> not zero percent renounced. He has built himself a hut that he lives in, and he'll, like, come in to, like, have sex with his wife and eat dinner. But mm. he lives in this, like, hut with other people who live in huts and tents on his family's property. It starts a little loose, like, come on, let's do this together. But it eventually, as these things do, formally crystallizes into, like, a semi-cult yes. type social I'm glad we movement. got to, like, making it a real standing-on-its-own yes. religion. These folks call themselves uh, Tolstoyans. There are actually still Tolstoyans who live in England today. Wait, really? Yeah, there's just a few communes left. There's probably like less than 20 Tolstoyans left in the world. But if any of our listeners have to be among those 20, mm -hmm. we would love to hear from you. Yeah, let me tell you a little bit about their life. Tolstoyans t uh, attempted to live a simple life. They ate vegetarian diets. They did not smoke. They did not drink. And they did not have sex. They were considered Christian pacifists and advocated non-resistance in all circumstances. Inspired a few other folks we might have heard of. Oh, yeah. This is where Gandhi calls them up. It's like, oh, mm -hmm. non-resistance. Interesting. Yeah. Oh, you don't eat animals? That's okay. You don't have sex? Neat. Interesting. Mm. You're, you know, not about these institutions? Got it. But... Tolstoy never actually renounces his material goods. Yeah, it's very easy to be this as like a rich heir who's like, stick it to the people, renounce your material goods. Right. While he, still like going back home to have sex with your wife inside the mansion bought by your frozen food, you know, inheritance, <laughs> right? Like, Yes, and he publicly starts like preaching these things, like don't get married, don't have sex. He's married. Don't drink. He's having sex. Yes, and his wife is like, Rick, Rick, what? Like, you have 13 kids. We're still kids having sex. Yes. I'm still birthing your children. They're still what? having kids yes. at this time? <laughs> God, man, what he lacked uh, in humility, mm -hmm. he made up for in audacity. Uh, they all do. <laughs> they all do. They all, they all do. So as this, you know, multiple dozens, up to hundreds of people come to live on his property... And he's, like, making his own shoes at this point. He's dressing what? himself in rags. <laughs> he's like, Just cosplaying the peasant life here. He is, yeah. Cos cosplaying peasant peasantry. Is that the right word? Yeah, serfdom, yeah. Serfdom. Uh, his wife is like, I'm sorry. No, no, no. You are going to immediately sign over all of the rights to all of your property, all of your future royalties, because I, the woman that you forced to marry you at 16 will not be left impoverished with your eight children. Yeah, no. And he's like, okay, no big deal. So he signs o over these rights, but like he doesn't lose them. It's just like if he leaves. Because they, stay, mar they, yeah, stay, they married. stay married. But if he leaves or dies, it's all hers. Okay, so if, yes, but he continues to live on this estate where he enjoys all these things. Yes, he is still writing prolifically. 
It's now like the mid 1890s. So remember, he was born in 28. So he's approaching 70. Okay. He writes this uh, treatise called The Kingdom of God is Within You. And it is this cumulative book of work or body of work that outlines 30 years of his thinking. And it lays out this like new organization for society based on his interpretation of Christianity focused on unconditional universal love. You can read it online. It's totally free. I didn't. No. <laughs> not interested. Don't care about it. Like the principles. Sure. Really don't like being told what to do. So I'm not going <laughs> to read it. Again, like this guy is not the worst of our heroes. He just starts to get... We we don't know Tolstoy to be this sort of person. Yeah. Uh, you think of him as an author, not as somebody who founded a new Christian cult slash sect and also happened to still enjoy all of his, like, massive wealth while he did it. Yes. You don't. He's still, like like you mentioned, he's still living the good life. He is isolating himself, though, further and further from his family and from Russian society. The Orthodox Church excommunicates him. They're like, your ideas of universal love are too radical for us, and you're a heathen, get out. He's like, that's fine. You can't start your own religion. Right. You can't not. That's against the rules. <laughs> that's against the rules. We have the religion. You have to be part of it. We have the religion because the money comes to the religion, and the money from the religion comes to us, and we want to keep a like monopoly on that. Yeah. Yeah. If everybody's just starting religions willy-nilly, pretty soon, what are we going to do? What are you going to do? He basically lives the last 20 years of his life going around, like, proselytizing these beliefs. He sets up, he does do some good, right? So he sets up schools for impoverished children all over Russia and on his family's estate. Again, like, this estate becomes, like, populated with all of these, like, people and institutions and ideas. Like, he, he just gets, like, tested out. It's all like yeah. prototyping. He's prototyping his like the kingdom of God is within his you. His little society. In Great. his society. By 1910, he's in very poor health. He is depending on his family to take care of him now. He's like 82. He is. He gets tired of his wife. He gets tired of her? And he walks out in the middle of the night. He leaves behind this letter and he wrote, quote, do not seek me. I feel that I must retire from the trouble of life. Perpetual guests, perpetual visits and visitors, perpetual cinematography operators poison my life. I want to recover recover from the trouble of the world. It is necessary for my soul and my body, which have lived 82 years upon this earth. He, how is he tired of her when he's the one who literally inflicted all of this upon himself. It right. is all his idea. He's like, uh, I'm really tired of all of these people coming here. I'm tired of the attention. I'm tired of you yelling at me because I brought all of this into our life. Yes. And after 48 years of being married to you, goodbye. And he just leaves. In the middle of the night. This sets off like this media sensation because everybody's like, where did Tolstoy go? He's this prominent figure and he's gone. A few days later, he shows up at a train station. By then, he has pneumonia. He had just spent uh, a few days riding in the third class train, cargo. I don't know. I'm not privy to the classes of train of turn of the century Russia. Turn of the yeah. century Russia, but it was not good conditions. He set out to visit his sister and others, and he was hoping to have this sort of like quiet death. He wanted to just move on from responsibilities, like running a cult and criticizing his wife. Okay, yeah. Right? Uh, Atlas Obscura has an article titled, Tolstoy Ghosted His Wife and Then Up and Died. <laughs> <laughs> and mwah, chef's kiss. I love it. Because that's exactly what happened. He left at the end of Octo October. By November 15th, he basically collapsed in this train station. People recognized him. People in the area like took him in and they got a they got a, a doctor. He got some morphine. By this point, the media knows his wife is informed. They're like, go tell his wife that he's like dying here, you know, 130 some odd miles away or whatever. Five days later, he dies of pneumonia. 
his wife was able to make it to him, but just in the like last few like hours of his life, which is like this very like shitty way to end a 50 year relationship, right? right? And that's a wrap on Tolstoy. Fuck you. Fuck you. Fuck you. You're cool. I'm out. I'm out. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. So I don't know. (laughs) Not not the most loving kindness oriented uh, exit you can make. No. Um, definitely not the universal one love of Jesus Christ. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I really don't feel one way or another about Tolstoy. Some of, some of our episodes, I start thinking like, these people are interesting. And then I'm like, oh, fuck them. Or like, oh, that's so interesting. To me, it just feels kind of like a. He's a rich douchebag who started a religion, seemed to be relatively reasonable, uh, in terms of what it wanted for the world, but also was still a total dick to everybody who was actually close to him. Yeah, it's to, it's just such a, like, contrived story. Like, it's been done. Neat. Yeah, come on. Right? Get real. A lot of folks do sort of say he's, like, the founder of nonviolence, but, I mean, those same folks obviously have never heard of Jesus Christ. Come on. So... There you go. <laughs> come on. Get with the program. Um, But, yeah, interesting Interesting. I learned a lot about Tolstoy that I could have gone my whole life without knowing. (laughs) There you go. But that's not what you get with this podcast. We are shoving it down your throat. I'm now convinced the way we're going to do this is we're going to start a Meet Your Heroes religion. This Mm. is is the way. Mm. Fuck a Patreon. We need to start a religion. Yes, yeah. Just like just like our man Pythagoras. Yeah. And now I mean, Tolstoy. This is this is where the smart money goes. I guess it is. Okay, Let so us know if, what you want the tenets of our yeah, religion to be. If people want to join our religion, where can they find us? Um, they can find us on social media at your heroes pod. I will put up an Instagram story and a Twitter poll about what folks want our religion to be. Okay. Okay, this it, is good. It's uh, inherently democratic like everybody gets to say oh is it mm-hmm. mm. yeah um, if we're just starting a religion i'm on the fence about this but see here this is like a spaghetti at the wall scenario uh-huh. where like we say you can believe whatever you want okay whoever sticks sticks and their religion or their ideas are automatically reflected in what they want in our religion okay well they say i want it to be this and we say it's that We'll give it a shot. I mean, like, I'm skeptical about how much money we're going to make that way, but we'll see. Well, you know what? Top-down religion has been tried for a few thousand years. Let's try bottom-up. Okay. You tell us what to believe, Mm -hmm. and then we'll see how that goes. We'll see how it goes. All right. Until next week. Don't be a hero. Bye.